Our epistle lesson is from Acts, the 8th chapter, verses 26 through 40. Hear now God's words to you. Then an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Get up and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a wilderness road. So he got up and he went. Now there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning home. Seated in a chariot, he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, go over to this chariot and join it. So Philip ran up to it and heard him reading from the prophet Isaiah, and he asked, Do you understand what you're reading? He replied, How can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to get in and, uh, to get in and sit beside him. Now, the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this, Like a shepherd he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch asked Philip, About whom, may I ask, does he speak? About himself or about someone else? And then Philip began to speak, and starting with the Scriptures, he proclaimed to him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And both of them, Philip and the eunuch, went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. The eunuch saw him no more, but went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he was passing through the region, he proclaimed the good news to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is the word of the Lord. When you've been in pastoral ministry as long as I have, there's a tendency to get a little jaded. To become slightly skeptical to get a little cynical. I wish it weren't so, but it is, so you have to sort of say it, don't you? Take, for example, this new six-week Bible study we're undertaking, this unbinding your heart. The cynic in me says, we've tried this kind of stuff before. I've been doing this a very long time. And every so often the church decides it'll make a new start or it'll re-emphasize something we've been neglecting for a long time. And it sounds really good. And we start off and everybody says, you know, this is biblical. This sounds like something that Presbyterians and Reformed people have always said they believe. This ought to really work. And we get excited about it. And then the naysayers begin to speak. Maybe it's our own subconscious. Maybe it's the person in the pew who's always negative about anything that might look like change. Sometimes it's an elder. Sometimes it's the preacher himself who can be the skeptic. And sometimes I suspect 
It is the devil himself working overtime in us, seeking to undermine or torpedo anything that might once again open our eyes and our hearts to what the Spirit might do new among us. Take the E word, for example. What? You don't know about the E word? The E word is the most shocking, the most frightening, the most discombobulating word we can say in church. I can stand up here and cuss and get away with it faster than I can get away with the E word. Well, maybe not, but close. What is the E word? Do I dare say it out loud in a worship service? It's biblical. It's used throughout the Scriptures. Our Reformed and Presbyterian foreparents knew it and used it. But sometime in the last 50 years or so, we decided it was somehow profane and we stopped talking about it. So what's the E word? Evangelism. The ongoing task of telling others good news. That's what gospel means about Jesus Christ. Now, I suspect that I know, at least in part, why we have such an awful reaction to the word evangelism. And it's because we've all been immersed in a hundred negative stereotypes that we've come to know and hate. Let me... Uh, just say a few. It's the street preacher telling all and sundry that they're going to hell. It's any reduction of the real gospel that makes some person's bigoted pronouncement the only view of God that's allowed. Or maybe it's about the sawdust trail or tent revivals, or pushy people in your face, or manipulation of your emotions to get you to do something maybe you don't want to do, or knocking on doors, or handing out tracts. Negative, negative, negative. And that's why we don't talk about the E word. Or maybe our distaste comes when we recognize that there is a subgroup in Christianity that has hijacked the name evangelical and applied it only to a rather narrow conservative vision of what the faith is supposed to be. Fundamentalists, social conservatives, literalists, those who view the Bible as some sort of a club to beat the rest of us over the head with. And most of us don't buy into that, that rather narrow, bigoted vision. And so we end up with this negative idea about the E-word. Y'all know I'm old. I attended seminary from 74 to 77. And you know how many classes I had in evangelism? Zero. We talked about theology. We learned homiletics. That means preaching to those of you who didn't go to seminary. 
We learned how to exegete Bible passages and teach it to somebody else. We learned about pastoral care. We learned about counseling. We learned about a host of other things. But the assumption was that we should already know how to talk about our faith with others. And since most of what looked like evangelism in that day was so negative and nobody gave it a positive view, we didn't study. We were expected to make it up as we went along. How do you think that's turned out in the last 35 years? The overall membership in the Presbyterian Church in the United States of America has more than halved in 35 years. We've done fewer baptisms, especially adult baptisms, year after year. We're growing older if you look at our demographics and our membership role. And almost none of it, hear this, Almost none of it has to do with any stand we have taken or not taken on a societal issue. No. The real issue is we've forgotten how to talk with other people about what we say is the most important thing in our life. Our faith. We've forgotten how to strengthen our own faith to the point where it's real enough that we might actually want to share it with somebody. In today's lesson from Acts, we have this story of the early church that demonstrates what can happen when a faith is so real and so rich that someone feels compelled to go where God sends them and do what God asks of them and tell that incredible good news of Jesus. It's a story about a faith that is so dynamic that it recasts all of societal norms in a new light. And that means it's an evangelism story that reminds us that there is always a cost and sometimes even a pain in carrying out the great commission that's been given to us. The story begins with a disciple named Philip. He is told to arise and go to, of all places, the road in the middle of the desert and of all times, noon. People don't travel in the desert in the hottest part of the day if they can help it. He's not told why. And just to call your attention to it, going into the desert is not his idea. He's called. He's told to go there. And here in the desert, Philip meets this strange traveler, an Ethiopian, a member of the court of the Queen of the Ethiopians, a man presumably of a different race, of uncertain gender or sexual orientation, or exotic nationality. He somehow got his hands on a scroll of Isaiah, which happens to be Jesus' favorite, favorite prophet, although he doesn't know it. And he's reading it, and he's reading about the lamb that has led to his death. 
How do I delicately explain in the middle of a church service what a eunuch is? You know how we're encouraged to take our dogs and cats to the vet to make sure they don't reproduce? We call it spaying or neutering. Is that delicate enough? Notice we do it to the animals we own. You get that? We own. There's a very good chance that this fellow in service to Candace, the queen, didn't choose didn't choose his situation. Somebody chose it for him, and probably because he was owned by the court, and he was smart enough, and he was going to be put in charge of money, and it was taking away one more possible temptation, because after all, he was owned. He was an animal. They could do with him as they chose. Just another piece of property. And if that's not bad enough, even though he doesn't choose this, it also keeps him from becoming fully a part of the people of God. He's been to Jerusalem trying to worship. It's not the color of his skin, although we know this is probably the first black convert. Truth is, he may be the first Gentile convert of all. But it's not the color of his skin that keeps him from being a Christian. It's not the fact that he's a slave. No, his body's been altered and he's not considered whole. And he can't be a part of the children of God. At least not fully. So not only have they taken away all sorts of other rights, they've taken away the right for him to fully relate to God's people. You want it to get more negative than that? And so here's Philip, sent by God into the desert, and he spots this Ethiopian riding along in his chariot, and the Spirit goes, says to him, go up and talk to him. And he goes up and he strikes up a conversation. And he hears him reading from Isaiah, and Philip says, do you understand what you're reading? And the guy says, no, but you're a Jew, maybe you can tell me. And so Philip begins to tell the Ethiopian what he knows. And while the text does not tell us, I can imagine that Philip must be somewhat resistive to this. After all, the gospel has never yet been preached to Gentiles. Paul's not been converted yet in the story. Peter has not gone down to talk to Cornelius. Perhaps Peter is even secretly glad as this Ethiopian seems to grow more and more enthusiastic that they're traveling through the desert where there's no water. But guess what? <laughs> Suddenly there is water. What is to keep me from being baptized, the Ethiopian asks. Philip's got a problem. He hadn't had a session meeting. You've got to have a session meeting before you can baptize somebody. 
The early church didn't have any idea what it was going to do with Gentiles. It didn't even, wasn't even thinking about Gentiles at this point. Here is this man of another race, of another culture, a man who has been physically altered, and the Spirit starts pushing into all those old stereotypes. And that's exactly what happens when we begin to listen to God. Who's eligible for baptism? Well, as it turns out, anybody who can make a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. And so Philip takes the bold step of baptizing an Ethiopian. I think it's only natural sometimes for us who've been in the church for most of our lives to begin to think about Jesus as sort of our special friend rather than our Lord and our Savior. And so we think about just getting down and us and Jesus and the people we know and Jesus and we'll be best friends and we won't talk much about this and we won't let God's Spirit be unleashed around us. And then suddenly one person does listen and we have to start calling this Ethiopian brother. Because he is. Barbara Brown Taylor, who is one of the great teachers of preachers in our day, writes, there is no limit to what the Holy Spirit can do. You just cannot hold your breath, that's all. You have to keep breathing and paying attention, keep responding to whatever crazy idea God comes up with next. Some people call it intuition, others call it inspiration, but forever the church has called it the Holy Spirit. Evangelism begins not with our inclusiveness, but in the heart of God in God's grand resolve to have all people, all nations gathered, not by race or gender or clan, but by the call of God. Hospitality doesn't begin with us. It begins with God. Sometimes we like to act as if evangelism is supposed to be our work. Now some of you are going to recoil at this idea, but it's a great quote and I'm going to use it. Don't get mad at me, get mad at Martin Luther. Luther said when he was asked about leading the Protestant Reformation, he says, I didn't lead the Protestant Reformation. I sat in a tavern drinking good beer and minding my own business. And the Holy Spirit did the rest. We need to remember that the church is not ours. And it's not a product of what we do. It's not based upon our breathless activity. Sometimes people in the church say, well, you know, I'd be more evangelistic. I'd tell more people, but I'm just so shy. Well, I know it's hard to talk about faith. It's hard for all of us. It's never easy, but sometimes I wonder if we're reluctant not to tell the story of Jesus 
Not because we're so shy, but because we're afraid it might work. And if it works, there will be all sorts of people we never thought of before filling these pews and being in this space and taking part. The wrong kind of person might say, you know, I want to follow Jesus and be baptized. Hmm. Sort of like an Ethiopian eunuch. Is there a limit to God's hospitality? According to the Bible, there's not. And so we read this story from Acts, and we read about a conversion. That's the language that the Bible will sometimes use. And we think about the Ethiopian. And yes, he was. But I want to argue there's another conversion here. It's sort of a sub-conversion. And it's Philip. Philip gets taken from where he was to a brand new place and he will never be the same again. He will never treat other people the same again. He will keep opening up the Gospel to anybody he can talk to. Today's Transfiguration Sunday is the Sunday before we start into the season of Lent. Jesus on the mountaintop, this otherworldly vision that we really don't know quite what to make of. But I would remind you of what the voice from the clouds say to the disciples and therefore to us. This is my Son, the Beloved. Listen to Him. Well, are we listening? Attempting to share the good news of Jesus is not just another program the church has come up with. It's a calling. It's a calling of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit that says He will keep the church new and interesting and keeps inviting people we never thought about to be sisters and brothers. To offer hospitality to a stranger is welcoming something new and unfamiliar and unknown into our world. And it will make all the difference. We're engaging in a bold new adventure. And I'm smart enough to know that skepticism runs high for some folk. Some don't think we need to bother with these things. But those of us who have pledged ourselves to listen to Jesus need to listen. Because Jesus is saying it's time to start sharing what you believe. Now, don't worry. There are not going to be any tracts to pass out. You're not going to have to knock on any stranger's door. There's not going to be any shouts of hell and damnation. That isn't what we do. No, but there might just be a new willingness to tell your story. To tell what you believe to somebody who's not yet heard or who's not yet fully discovered. If nothing else happens in the next seven weeks until we get to Easter, one thing surely will. 
And it is that those of us who decide we're going to listen to Jesus and engage in all of this are going to find ourselves in a new position. We may be converted ourselves in a way we never thought about. God's going to do a new thing. And we're going to be surprised because none of us know where God's going to take us next. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.